0: Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. All right, so I was looking at the, uh, the name or the little description that Pastor Lance had put together here for our little sessions here. And um, it talks about moving on from the um, apostles through the book of Acts, then moving forward all the way up to the Reformation. And so I was kind of wondering, I'm really flexible, it's like a big accordion. I can grow and shrink and uh, do whatever we want here the next six weeks. I'm kind of curious what you would like to cover so here's the description. It says, what happened after the book of Acts? What else did Paul do? What's the story of the early church? This six-week course will consider the history of the early church up to the Reformation, which will confirm the strength of Christ promised to build his church and bolster our resolve to continue his mission. So that's kind of the, the billing, I guess you would say. I'm kind of curious of anything that you want to discuss. So we'll make a little list up here. Like, I, want to, I have a question about anything between New Testament and Martin Luther. So you got 1,500 years to kind of fill in the blanks. So are there any questions that you would like discussed in the next six weeks? And we'll try to incorporate them. So I know uh, that David had mentioned how kind of the apostles, how they ended life, how they died. Are those just traditions? Are they history? So, um, so we'll make sure to try to add. That actually it would fit really well next week, probably to fit that in. So the apostles... Um, I was going to put demise, but that sounds really negative. But if You could put their faithfulness, that would be a positive way of saying it. <clears throat> Anything else that you would want to discuss between the New Testament and Martin Luther? Yes? This is probably really broad book. Where did the Catholic Church go wrong? Okay. Because obviously they started off Okay, so, like, um, and as you know, Scott, it's not like you wake up some morning like, the Roman Catholic Church started last night. Congratulations. (laughs) It's Roman Catholics this morning. So how do you begin to kind of uh, see what's now thought of as Roman Catholic doctrine that would be different than New Testament? Uh, By doctrine, I just mean teaching, so New Testament teaching. Where does that come from? How does it begin to build? Um, Even the Catholic Church today would say that that whole indulgence thing of paying cash and getting forgiveness of sins for purgatory—bad idea. So they themselves would actually critique some of the stuff that's happening in the Middle Ages as just really extreme, without changing the core theology behind the ideas, though. So that would still be on the books with their catechism. So that's a great question. <clears throat> and if it's helpful, like we can give—I can give you like a list of like when different doctrines enter into the mix um, of the history—that might be helpful. Other questions you may have between New Testament and Martin Luther? All right. While he's thinking about that, let's try a different list. I'm kind of curious where you are currently on all this. So let's try. Um, I was going to say 100 to 500, but that would include New Testament figures. So we'll just put 200 to 500. 500 to 1,000. And then 1,000 to what year does Martin Luther nail up the 95 theses? Anybody remember? 1517. Good. Do you remember what day of the year? No, I only the time. <laughs> so there we go. Two Rivers, classical education, teaching us timelines. Yeah, so it's October 31st, 1517. So when you think October 31st, we think Halloween or something. Uh, but it's actually Reformation Day in, in another sense. You could actually celebrate that. I'm curious about any figures you know... In these wide blocks of I any mean, Christian church history figures, not world history figures, but anybody know anybody between 200 and I should say 100, sorry, 100 and 500, any one you know, like what's your current basis of knowledge? Any church history figures? Augustine. Okay, so Augustine, good. He's toward toward the tail end of this, so late 300s, early 400s. that's when he's flourishing, but he isn't that half-millennium. Um, Augustine is said to be the most influential theologian between the Apostle Paul and Martin Luther. Um, at least, yeah, in a general sense. For Catholics, Thomas Aquinas might be right up there with him. But Anyone else from 100 to 500? I <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> haven't heard of that one before. <laughs> um, yes? Either. Polycarp, polycarp. Oh, Polycarp, good. Can't forget that guy. All right, so Polycarp. So he's martyred around the year 156, probably. And he says at that point that he's in his 80s, so 86 years old. So if you go backward, it'd be eighty seventy when he's born. And then he lives up to 156. So that's at the beginning part of that timeline, right? So Augustine's toward the end, Polycarp's toward the beginning. Any others? All right. Athanasius would actually be during this time. Good, Athanasius. So Athanasius is after the Council of Nicaea 325 moving forward, and he's going to be defending um, the deity and humanity of Christ, you know, together, two natures, one person, coming out of the 300s. Give me one more chance to add here. Otherwise, let's move forward to here. So 500 to 1,000. Does anybody know any church history figures during that time period? It's a pretty common Protestant response, by the way. <laughs> so the dark ages, uh, depending where you, you put them, like 476 to 800, that's going to take up two-thirds of this, the so-called dark ages. Last chance on that one. Okay, so so the good news is we'll be learning stuff, right? So, um, so your tuition dollars at work in the free Maranatha... Wednesday night church history class. Um, 1,000 to 1,500. Anyone know any of those major figures? This is also kind of a blank slate currently. All right, Aquinas would be around the year 1200, so Thomas Aquinas. He would be a major theologian, especially for Roman Catholics, up until Vatican II, even. He was like the guy. Any others? Martin Luther, okay, because he's born before 1500, he's born in the 1400s, good, and he's actually a Catholic monk in the Augustinian order, so he's an Augustinian Catholic monk. So I'll I'll, I'll grant you that, we'll put Martin Luther here. Anyone ever hear of so-called pre-reformers? Like, so they're before the reformers, but they're trying to reform the church, so they're pre-reformers. Okay, so no one has, okay, like um, John Huss, John Wycliffe, those are examples of pre-reformers who would be there as well. Um, can all of you see the screen behind me? Even though this, because I can't see it very well because it's in my way. Uh, the whiteboard's in the way. Okay, if I flip this this way. Nope, this way. Where am I pointing, Logan? Up above? Do I need to turn it on? Oh, there it is. Okay. Um, so tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about um, a New Testament bridge, so New Testament going to the early church, so before and after. So looking at the description Pastor Lance had given me, it talks about Book of Acts moving forward. So it's kind of like before um, the New Testament and then after the New Testament. So we're going to play a little bit before and after to get our minds flowing just for fun. Have you ever played um, or watched Wheel of Fortune on TV? Okay. So you know how before and after works? It's a phrase and it ends in a word, and that word links into the next phrase. Um, so here we go. Oops, wrong way. Um, what's that phrase? High winds, of High winds of change. Good. Good job. High winds of change. So the yellow word is the, the bridge word. What's this one? Harry Queen blizzard conditions. Good. I, if you haven't noticed, I'm choosing wintry things. That's the theme of these tonight. Inclement weather the storm. Excellent. All right. Electric blanket of snow. Keeps you warm during the snowstorm. All right. So uh, we're going to bridge tonight. We're going to do some before and after. We're going to go New Testament to kind of get our bearings, then go forward. We're, I do have a handout. We're not going to get the whole handout. That's fine. Like I said, um, this is accordion style. So you could help pass those out if you wish. I should probably have one myself, just so I know where I'm going. <clears throat> All right. Um, so the picture on the handout is a fish. I got this off the web. History of the early church. Anybody know why the fish is a symbol of the early church? Have you heard that before? Already? Right, have you like seen bumper sticker or bumper decals? with a fish on it. So it's a symbol of Christianity in some circles. Not as popular as a cross, of course, um, but anybody know why that is? Why is that? Communication wasn't in relationship to, you know, I don't know, I've always heard you, you draw the top and you draw the bottom. Yeah. And so there's an interesting story, and it's one of those things that you hear, and I'd, I'd be curious if we could find like a primary source document to like fill it in, if that makes sense. But the stories that you hear at least in the 20th, 21st century is that you go like to the beach as persecuted Christians and one person with his foot or something, uh, he draws you know, one line and the other draws the other line. Oh, that's who you are. You're a Christian. It's like in persecuted times, it's kind of like the secret handshake or something like that. So um, it's hard to look at primary sources and to get the full details of something like that. In terms of early Christian art, uh, the fish is sometimes used, and it's because it's an acronym. So, what's an acronym mean? An acronym is letters, stand for letters that stand for something. So, the Greek word um, is ichthus. So, the i part of ichthus is from Jesus, which is Jesus. The k sound of ichthus is from Christos, Christ. The th part of ichthus is theos, God, and the us part is from Huios, Son. So it's Jesus Christ, Son of God. That's um, an acronym. So it's actually a very Christian um, symbol, right? So it's Jesus Christ, Son of God. It's the fish, and it ties into, of course, miracles of Christ, as well as the feeding of the 5,000 and the miraculous catch of fish, and the idea of being fishers of men and different concepts. So that's what I chose for simple black and white art. On the um, outline here, we have some preliminaries to start off with, and So a couple of things to mention. Uh, This is, uh, Pastor Lance would call this church history, I think, church history one or early church history. I think that you uh, realize that we have to define terms, right? And we're going to be using the words church uh, and Christian, we'll get to that, in phenomenological sense. What I mean by that is people call themselves churches. They call themselves Christians. And out of a judgment of charity, we are including them in our story. But, um, we'll probably be talking, especially as we get later in the story, about more and more people who actually may not be true believers, that they may not be true believers in Jesus Christ in a New Testament sense of that. And so when we talk about the history of Christianity, we're kind of like, okay, what do we, who gets to define the terms? Okay. Let me try this a different way to help make sense of you. Sometimes in our circles, uh, we talk about, oh, Christianity is being uh, persecuted in the West or something like that. I personally don't think we're being persecuted yet. I think it's just more um, social marginalization. But it can seem painful to us if we don't like social marginalization. Um, But some other people around the world are really being persecuted in real ways around the world, unlike us. Uh, But from a secular perspective, it doesn't make sense to them when Americans talk that way. Because they're like, well, let's take polls. How many Christians are there in America? It's like, oh, 60 to 70% say they're Christians. How could a majority group be persecuted? doesn't make sense sociologically. So what's happening is we use the word Christian in a more precise, defined sense, right? So we have like adjectives to add, like born-again Christian or something like that, while others will use uh, the word Christian in broader senses. That's also true of the word church in church history, for that matter. So if you look at our definition of church, it's usually something like a covenanted uh, covenant community of um, baptized believers who are, have church offices and um, intend to be a church and do the ordinances and have preaching of the word, etc. So that brings up a question, though, <clears throat> like is the Presbyterian church in town, although it's gospel preaching, is it a church? Because by your definition, it's immersed, baptized believers, but they baptize infants. So then you kind of begin to elasticize your use of the word church to bring them in. And, and right, rightfully or wrongfully, it's <laughs> also true of church history. You know, we'll talk about the Presbyterian church, if we were, if we were to go into church history, too, or the Lutheran church, et cetera. And so um, you have kind of a different use of the word church at times. Also BCAD, at that point, the question isn't so much different denominations. It's like uh, often more religious or other religions and Christianity. So, uh, the very beginning, we might share a few BC dates, but what's BC mean? All right, so before Christ, and then AD means what? Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, is in Latin, anno like annual, like annual plants or yearly plants. Domini, like dominus or dominate, it's uh, Latin for the Lord. So the year of our Lord, strictly speaking, 80, should precede the date. Like the year of our Lord, 2024. I was just filling out some stuff. this Even today, I was still putting 2023, even though we're three weeks into it. But um, that's the year of our Lord, BC. Now, sometimes, of course, in secular textbooks and so on, they won't use that. They'll use BCE, CE. so before common era, common era. And obviously it's because uh, they don't want to have the religious in their minds, the religious baggage tied to that, although it gets a little bit complicated because actually the origin of opposition to BC language in even state universities wasn't just agnostics or atheists, but Jews. Because before Christ means before the Messiah, but they don't believe he's the Messiah, right? So it would be unfair to say that this is entirely due to secularists and agnostics and atheists, just like it's unfair to say that it's only due to that that Bible reading got out of the public school system. Because one of the major key cases uh, decades and decades before Madeline Murray O'Hare was a Catholic family in Wisconsin who wanted it out of Wisconsin because you're only using the King James Bible, and that's the Protestant version. You don't have the Apocrypha. In other words, you have to think about the Bible. What do you mean by that phrase? And when you read the Bible in the public school, who gets to define what the Bible is? So if we just think in our terms, it's an easy solution. Like, of course, it's the Bible. But then you begin to think complexly with other denominations, like, well, wait a minute. And And then when Catholics are like, well, I kind of feel like the public schools are trying to, like, indoctrinate my kids and convert them and proselytize them, let's form Catholic parochial private schools and ask for government money to go to them, whether in the milk... The lunch the buses 1950s what would evangelicals have said you can't do that that's my taxpayer money nowadays evangelicals want taxpayer money for their schools because they don't feel welcome in the public school you see how things change over time and you kind of begin to think more complexly like oh are we principled or are we just like about me and what's good for me right so you kind of get into those kinds of interesting things so I think that's what I want to discuss at preliminaries, uh, the language of church, the language of Christianity. Just realize we're probably using those pretty, pretty broadly, Christian pretty broadly. BCAD, I will retain the traditional BCAD. Although in the early church often we'll talk about circa. So what does that mean, circa? Like, when was Athanasius born? Well, circa, fill in date. Means around, so like circa is from Latin as well, circular, around, because we don't know when they were born sometimes, and part of the complication in the ancient world sometimes people themselves didn't know when they were born, <laughs> uh, because you know the family didn't keep detailed records about how all that happened, and so and and you have a lot of orph- more orphans back then than today, etc. All right, those are some preliminaries. Uh, let's move forward to the context of earliest Christianity. This is where I have some BC type stuff. So if you go backward about BC 323, um, you have a guy up in Macedonia. So up here, northern north of Greece, who is the great, which happens a lot in history. Monarchs call themselves or are called the great. I mean, when's the last time you like, hi, I'm William the Mediocre or something, right? <laughs> It doesn't really play well, so you you tend to have effusive language for people. So anybody know a person up here who's called the Great and is going to? Oh, I am pointing the wrong. Thank you. (laughs) That makes no sense to you whatsoever. Uh, Over here. So who's up there? Alexander the Great. Okay, he's going to conquer from Macedonia, which is Greek-ish in culture, but not Greece. But he kind of always wants to be like fully Greek because that's the cool people. He wants to be part of the cool kids and sit at their table. And so he's going to conquer Greece itself. He's going to go eastward. As he goes eastward, he's going to go all the way to the Indus River. Indus River. <laughs> I got a peek over the whiteboard. Uh, back to the Indus River and then some modern day Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria. Um, he can go down to Egypt. Some fun st- Fun stories is like he conquers Tyre, which is along the Phoenician coast just north of Israel, which is actually in direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And when he first comes by through Tyre, they're like, can't touch this, we're going on an island, and you can't conquer us. And And he's like, I'll be back. And then what he does is he uh, goes down to Egypt, comes back up, he takes stones from the old city they had abandoned, throws it into the sea, builds a causeway, goes on the island, conquers them. And so the Old Testament said there will be no stone left upon another, and Tyre will be conquered, and actually all happen. Well, in uh, 323, he then takes control of Israel-Palestine. Uh, Israel, Palestine. Uh, Palestine is very um, anachronistic, of course, because that's not what would it would be called back then. So that would be this area right here. And then he dies in 331 B.C. Uh, in his 30s. So imagine, like, you know, i back in, and what did I accomplish when I was 33 years old? Not, you know, not a whole lot. This guy conquered a lot. Um, And he's in history books, and he's famous. And he has a drinking banquet, and he dies that evening. So some people tie it to some type of reaction to the feasting and partying. Some people think he just had some type of brain aneurysm, and he died. Point is, though, he died. And he has a young little son named, we'll call him Alex Jr. That's not his official name, but Alex Jr. But Alex Jr. isn't by any means old enough to rule anything, right? And so when he's was like, so what's going to happen? What's going to happen to your kingdom? And his phrase is, uh, to the strongest. So he's setting up basically a civil war. So you have like four, actually more than four, but four key generals who will fight over the kingdom. And two of them are the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So uh, the Ptolemies, let me come this way, they're going to rule in Egypt. If this helps you remember this, Ptolemy, it's actually spelled P-T, Ptolemy, Egypt, so monomic device there. So they rule Egypt, and then the Seleucids rule Syria. And where do the two meet? Like, where would the Ptolemaic kingdom and the Seleucid kingdom? So Ptolemies think like Cleopatra. Where would Cleopatra's kingdom and the Seleucid kingdom meet in tension point? Israel, Israel, right? Israel, right there. So through much of human history, Israel has been a flashpoint of military conquest and tension and all that. So that's where they're going to meet. And um, then you get the whole story about how um, Jews growing up there, they're like, we need to get rid of these Seleucid people because there's this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Um, Epiphanes means like manifestation, like manifestation of God. So he's like a humble guy. So um, he, he thinks that he's a divine manifestation, and he tells the Jews to do things like not read the Torah, to burn the Torah, um, not circumcise their kids, and uh, to, according to some story, at least, to sacrifice a pig in the holy of holies on Temple Mount. Okay, so if you're like, what's the top 10 ways to uh, offend Jews? <clears throat> Probably putting an unclean animal in the holiest place, and 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 furthermore, he put an um, idol of Jupiter there. So he's sacrificing a pig to a false god in the holy of holies place. Well, that. Sends the uh, faithful Jews over the top. right? Nah, we can't, we can't uh, deal with that. And so they start a rebellion. And so some priest families named the Maccabees, which means the hammers, they will oppose the Seleucids. They'll kick them out. They'll form an independent kingdom. So this whole time period, though, is called the time period of Hellenization, which means making Greek. So what's happening is you have Greek language being spoken. You have Greek um, culture being shared. Um, Greek clothing, so that's Hellenization, so making things Greek. Um, so that's the context in which Christianity comes with another facet, which is the Roman Empire. So the salute of the Maccabees are in control of Israel. At one point, they have a civil war, and they're, they're two brothers like fighting each other, and one's like, "I have a great idea. I want to win a civil war. I hear that there's this new kingdom out west, and that they're powerful." And I've talked to them, and they're like, hey, we'll come help you against your brother, and then we'll hand the kingdom back over to you, and you can say thank you and wave bye. And so he calls in the kingdom from the west, and of course, that's Rome. And they come in. They do help him conquer his brother, but they're not going to leave, right? It's Rome. So they stick around, and then they set up a uh, Roman province there in modern-day Israel, And uh, so that's the history of early Christianity is that for the most part, early Christianity is going to take place in a Greek-speaking but politically Roman context. So we um, italicize, not italicize, we hyphenate this as Greco-Roman. So early Christianity arises in a Greco-Roman background. So one example is that the language spoken by almost everyone who's educated is actually Greek, not Latin, Although, Rome is the political power. So you have facets of Greekness, you have facets of Romanness, and that's kind of the context of early Christianity. All right, that brings us to Jesus and history of historical sources. So obviously we have the four Gospels. Outside of that, we have some other, um, non inspired, because they're not scripture, but rather reliable early Christian authors that talk a little bit about Jesus. So like t- later today, if we have time, we'll talk about Ignatius of Antioch, a so-called apostolic father. He gives an account of Jesus that's not found in the Gospels. So it's probably true. Um, but he's also mentioned in these apocryphal works, which are really hard to base your teaching and life and doctrine on. And, and to back up for a moment, apocryphal in the New Testament, there's no group that believes that scripture. Okay, so Roman Catholics don't believe the New Testament Apocrypha Scripture. Orthodox don't believe that. Lutherans, Anglicans, Reformed, no one believes that Scripture. Where we differ with the Catholics and Orthodox is with the Old Testament. In their Old Testament, they have an Apocrypha that they have that we don't have. And by the way, uh, some of the books are called 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Maccabees, which is the story I just told about the Maccabees clearing out the Seleucids. I do think that 1st and 2nd Maccabees are rather historically reliable, but they're not scripture. They're not inspired scripture text. Um, And then you have some groups that kind of, like Anglicans, if you look at their doctrinal statement from the 1500s, they would say, have it in the Bible. Um, You can read it for edification, but don't base doctrine on it. It may surprise some of you in the room that the King James Bible, where it was first published in 1611, had the Apocrypha in it. And so it had the Old Testament Apocrypha in it, and it has in front um, a devotional list, and it actually has some of the readings from the Apocrypha. Like we, we have today like a Bible reading list, what you're supposed to read every day for the year. Um, the King James in that context actually had the Apocrypha in it. Well, going back to New Testament Apocrypha. Some of this is really bizarre. If you have chance on your own, look on the web for the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It's an account, account loosely labeled, about young Jesus, the boy, and he just does crazy things. So, um, some examples here. He is playing with childhood friends, boyhood friends. He's playing at a river, and he makes a little um, dam on the river out uh, of mud, kind of stops like a beaver dam. But one of his friends kind of kicks it over, and Jesus gets mad. Boy, Jesus gets mad, says something, and the boy topples over dead. Because Jesus is amazingly powerful. So then Jesus goes to what we call kindergarten, and he's trying to learn the alphabet, and his teacher's like, come on, get with it. And Jesus is like, whoa, not only do I already know the alphabet, because, you know, he's divine, but also I know the secrets behind the alphabet, and he says something, and the teacher dies. And so then uh, they ask Joseph and Mary to, like, please keep Jesus at home. It's actually found in the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, because people are dying. And then he does things like he takes little clay birds, he makes clay birds, throws them in the air, they fly away. So, it's interesting, it's really supernatural, but it's not the type of miracles you have actually in the New Testament. So, the New Testament, first of all, you don't have just random miracles like, let's make clay birds, throw them in the air. I mean, they're always for a purpose, right? They're for a purpose, uh, and they tend to be very helpful to people. The one exception of a destructive miracle would be probably the cursing of the fig tree, but that's not a person, that's you know, a plant, and he curses that. You don't have Jesus Christ killing off people because he's divine and can do such things inside the New Testament. That's an extreme case, and so don't think of all the Apocrypha as that extreme, um, but that would be an example of one of the apocryphal works. However, we also have Jesus stuff in Roman and Greek historians, so this is really interesting. So some people like Suetonius and Tacitus, they actually mentioned Jesus Christ around the year 115, 110, that era. Um, Another one is Pliny. And if all we had was those Roman authors writing in Latin, as well as Josephus' picture here, so he's actually a Jewish author writing in Greek, uh, but he's writing for the Roman emperor. He talks about Jesus, although it's really debated what part's meant to be there and what part is later Christian copyists adding stuff in there. So that's a, a huge debate. He probably does not have originally everything that's now credited to him at that point. Um, Even without that, you still have, like, the Jewish uh, mission in Talmud that mentions some Jesus stuff. And you would still know that Jesus uh, walked around Israel teaching, having disciples, and they would word it that it was purported or claimed that he did miracles. They're not going to flat out say he does miracles, right, because that's not their point of view. They'd also say that um, he was crucified by Romans, and it was reported that he rose again. Very similar language. They're not going to say he rose again. But they're going to say it's reported that he rose again. In other words, it's really interesting. You can get the basic Christian charisma by that I mean preaching, from non-Christian texts um, by 112, 115, 150, um, the basics of it. So what do I mean by that? If you want to take your Bibles for a moment and turn to Acts 10. So now we actually have some scripture text to bridge here with our before and after. But Acts chapter 10, and this is Peter's preaching. And we can jump down in verse um, 37. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. It's a very basic Christian message. It talks about Jesus is the Messiah, his person. He's called the Lord of all in verse 36. Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. It talks about his miracles, it talks about disciples, it talks about teaching, it centers on the crucifixion, although, strictly speaking, it doesn't say cross, um, you can see in your English translation it says tree, and that's often how a Jew would talk about that, that's how Peter, who's the, the uh, preacher here, talks about it in Acts 10, Peter talks the same way in First Peter, and so they would tend not to use the word cross, where cross is a Latin word, but also it's because in their mind it ties into Deuteronomy. So what does Deuteronomy say about all this? Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, right? So it's a tree. Um, it's a tree-like uh, figure, but it does seem based upon the accounts in the Gospels, there is a crossbar that Jesus helps to carry, et cetera. Where it is on the cross, that's a whole other question. Like, is it at the top? Is it the middle, you know, towards the middle, et cetera? But it is a cross-like thing. So you have the, the gist of it here. What you don't have in like Peter appearing in uh, Cornelius' household is, let me tell you about the time he healed the blind Bartimaeus, and let me tell you about the time he had five loaves and two fish, and let me tell you about the time um, he gave us the Beatitudes. In other words, a basic Christian kerygma could be said elevator style like this, right? And almost all of that is corroborated in non-Christian sources. Does that make sense? So non-Christian sources aren't going to talk about specificities of specific miracles or specific teachings, but they do corroborate what we know about this. And in a sense, like, well, wait a minute, though, that's 112, 115. That's 80 years after Jesus died, and that's true. Josephus, though, is 90, so that would be 60 years after Jesus died. Let's actually turn the corner on that from argumentation perspective, though. What other low-class Galilean do we mo- know much about? from A.D. You know, 0 to 30, as it were, because they don't leave us written material, and they don't have a strong influence in culture. The fact that we know anything about um, this low class, because he's born into a carpenter family, et cetera, um, Galilean, is pretty amazing, actually, So even from a secular perspective, the fact that we have knowledge. Now, there are a few secular historians who think all of it's made up. So the early Christians make the whole thing up, like the whole cloth, warp and woof, all, the whole thing. And not just the resurrection or miracles, but everything. There was a prophet, Drake University here in town, two decades ago, who took that view. It's called the Christ myth view. But most secular historians think that's just outrageous. Otherwise, if you're that critical and skeptical, what do you know about Plato? What do you know about Socrates? Like Socrates left nothing in writing. All we have is Socrates, the people writing about Socrates, much like Jesus, by the way. We don't have Jesus' writings. We have people writing about Jesus. And anyone ever heard the name Bart Ehrman before? Anyone heard that name? He's a strong skeptic. He grew up, well, he says he had an evangelical conversion in high school in Kansas, uh, state of Kansas. He goes off to Moody Bible Institute, uh, transfers to Wheaton to complete his degree, and then goes to um, Princeton Seminary, becomes an agnostic in the midst of all that. He's one of the most um, publishing, like rapid rate of publication, and most fiery. Um, agnostics in New Testament scholarship today. Even he says, oh, crazy Christ mythers! Like, they don't believe Christ existed? That's crazy. Of course he existed. I mean, even he would think that there really was a Jesus of Nazareth. He would say the legends grow over time, right? So all the miraculous stuff is brought on by accretion. but he would still say that Jesus existed. Um, it's interesting, in the Jewish sources, they never deny he does miracles, but they claim that he went down to Egypt and he picked up sorcery, or his family did. Like his family and he go down to Egypt, pick up sorcery, and then they do magic. That's how he does um, supernatural things. So two things about that. One is apologetics. So to back up, what's that word mean? What's apologetics mean? Like apologia or apologia is defense. So it's the Greek word for defend. When we hear apology today, we think like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, didn't mean for that to happen. That's that's not what they mean. They mean defend. Like you defend the faith. And um, so in the ancient world, often the point of contact and defense isn't whether or not miracles can happen. Because a lot of worldviews thought they could. The question was, who caused the miracle to happen? Was it demons or was it God? So apologetics kind of changes based upon your your antagonist, like who you're fighting against at the moment. The other thing to put in the mix is that this shouldn't surprise you, though, because what do the Jews say? In the Gospels themselves about Jesus and his miracles, they say they, they credit it to what? Beelzebub. The power of Beelzebub, which is a name for Satan, right? So the Lord of the Flies. So they credit it to Satan. So we already knew that. Even if we didn't have the mission of the Talmud, we know that Jews acquiesced to miraculous things happening, but they would say that it was done through um, negative powers, I guess you would say. Before I move on, any questions about that at all? or about um, I could add more if you want. About There's a 150s guy named Lucina Samosota. He's like the late-night talk show host of the second century. By that, I mean he makes fun of everybody. He's just completely satirical. Through, through humor, he just cuts everyone down. And he has a book called Peregrinus. If you think of Peregrine Falcon, it's someone who flies, or a falcon, a bird that flies, flits and flies. So the hero of his story tries out all kinds of systems. He's a Platonist for a while. He's a Manichaean, or I don't know if he's a Manichaean, but he's an um, a Epicurean for a while, a Stoic. He tries Christianity for a while. And then and he uses the whole thing as a framework to make fun of everybody, Stoics, Epicureans, Platonists, and Christians. When it comes to Christians, he's like, even though he was not very bright, he's actually kind of a slow guy, that he was brighter than all the other people who said they were Christians because they were really not bright. And then he becomes a leader quickly because he's half-bright. And then they make him like a pastor, and then he gets imprisoned. But then, because they're Christians, they, they bring him food and clothing. And so a peregrinus is like in prison living the high life. He's like having potluck banquet dinners every day because the Christians are helping him. And then uh, Lucian goes on to say, and you know, they're elevating him just like they elevated uh, that, that teacher of superstition i.e., Jesus from the first century. He's very negative. Interestingly, though, it actually teaches us some positive things, though, about really Christianity. Like they actually take care of fellow imprisoned people, which is what's commanded in Hebrews chapter 13. Remember those who are in prison. And, um, and also, it's stressed in Galatians 6, help out those, especially those of the household of faith who are poor. That's another example of Jesus being spoken. Uh, we'll talk about Tacitus next week we we'll talk about um, persecution because he has some fascinating stories about that. All right, growth in the book of Acts. Yeah, question. I to ask about Mark. The, the New Testament mm-hmm. about. Yeah. was there anybody who I mean like the Catholics have the Old Testament Apocrypha. Was there anybody at any time that, that, that this was part of their canon? Yeah. So in the New Testament, <clears throat> everyone's the same across all denominations of Christendom, with two exceptions. There are some Syriac Eastern Christians who don't have the book of Revelation. So they cut it out. And it is a very hard book to interpret and understand. And because it was hard, some people are questioning it. Um, so, we, you know, Eusebius talks about people questioning it, but they actually don't have it in their Syriac Bible. Down in Ethiopia, the Ethiopi- Ethiopic Christians have everything we have, but they also have First Enoch With the New Testament, though, which is like an intertestamental book, um, and they add it to the New Testament. So those are two very small exceptions. But Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, um, et cetera, they would all um, be just like our New Testament. Now, um, some secularist-type people who don't believe in the concept of canon on a theological level, what I mean by that is they don't think any texts are inspired by God. Uh, they have started to work with five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Thomas. Not the infancy Gospel of Thomas that I talked about. That one's just a weird one. It's fun. It's really fun to read, but it's just weird. The Gospel of Thomas, is is no storyline to it. It doesn't talk about Christ's crucifixion and death. It's just kind of like the Sermon on the Mount with all these sayings, one after another, but longer than the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the sayings of the Gospel of Thomas are exactly like the synoptic Gospels that we have. You will see it word for word. In both texts, some of them are quite different. Probably the most famous one is the way the whole thing ends at the end. It says, until women become like men and men like women, they will not enter the kingdom of God. Well, that verse is used anachronistically uh, by modern people involved in sexuality, gender issues. But what's happening in that specific verse is probably a very Gnostic background. So let me back up. Uh, Gnostic was a heresy that downplayed the body. And so, since genderness is, you know, we would say DNA. They don't understand DNA back then, but they would understand anatomy. And so, it's kind of like, get past your embodied embodiment. Think of the immaterial self, the real you, which is the divine you in Gnostic views. That's what they would probably mean by that, by women becoming men and men women. They don't mean transition surgeries or like that. What, what they mean is go beyond embodiment to stress the real inner you. Um, so there even seems to be some heretically influenced sayings inside the Gospel of Thomas. Um, But you can look at work like the five Gospels of Jesus, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Thomas, some secular uh, groups like the Jesus Seminar have tried to work with that and bring it. This is really important to consider in that if we are sending 18 and 19 year olds to places that they take a religion class and they start hearing about these things and they never heard about it in church, they're like, I feel lied to. Like, I didn't know there was a the gospel of Thomas. And so probably the best thing is to kind of begin to inoculate them. Like, hey, we know about those things. It's okay. Um, they are out there. If you're really interested, uh, go to earlychristianwritings.com. You'll see a whole list of all these types of stuff you can look into. Um, realize that the website itself is put together by more liberal, theologically liberal people. But it will give you Um, translations of of many of these documents, whether it's the Gospel of Mary, um, the revelation of Peter, the revelation of uh, Paul, the Acts of Paul, the Acts of John. These have names tied to apostles, Um, but most conservative scholars and even most moderate scholars would say they're probably not written, though, until the second century. What complicates that is that liberal scholars don't think Canonical Gospels are written until, like, 80s, 90s, and beyond. They wouldn't date them like we would, the 60s, for example. We're, we're approaching similar evidences with completely different worldviews. So that, for example, when a secularist looks at Mark and Matthew, and Jesus seems to prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, like, well, there's no way that's written eighty sixties 60s, because the destruction's 80s, 70. They don't believe in the supernatural possibility of prophecy, So it's written post facto, like people put the words in Jesus' mouth as if he prophesied a coming destruction, but it's really later Christians making it up, putting it on his mouth. That's the the common view you would have in more secular circles if you were to take um, like a New Testament class, at University of Iowa or Iowa State University. Something to think about all that, and I actually say something about the whole I'm actually in favor of personally I'm in favor of vouchers, so Don't take my previous illustration wrongly. I was trying to say we need to be principled and all that. Something to think about on that kind of issue, too, though, is let's teach the Bible in public schools. If you're thinking like how we would teach it, if you're thinking about University of Iowa-trained secular people teaching the New Testament to your 12-year-old, 13-year-old, you might start thinking a little bit differently, like, oh, I'm not sure if that's the greatest idea. Or, I mean, to be fair, you can have compromises. Like you teach it as literature. You don't give right or wrong. You don't. You just kind of tell it like a story, and treat it like literature, and have quizzes and tests about it. But you don't try to decide how you live by it. You don't do theology. You don't do ethics. It's just literature. And that's what some have done. So that that becomes a debate um, as well. Great question, Mark. Any other questions about that? Okay. Um, let's move forward to the growth in the book of Acts. Growth in the book of Acts is both um, ethnic and geographical. Geographical is really easy to consider because Acts chapter 1, verse 8 said, 1, chapter 1 verse 8 says what? Go into... So it goes in the end with all the world, but it starts off with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And so you could you could quibble about what he means by ends of the earth, what Luke means. Probably, at least what he probably doesn't have in mind, at least, is like Polynesia and Fiji and Tahiti, Fiji and Tahiti. Um, It's probably the known world. So um, you you start off from Jerusalem, and then you move out to Judea. Samaria is the next kind of country north, region north. And then you go to the known world, be the Roman Empire, and then probably beyond that east and south, they know about some of those areas uh, through trade and so on through the ends of the earth, but I don't know, you know, obviously no modern historian thinks that Christianity went all the way to like north and south. Well, Mormonism is a whole other story. We'll, we'll save that for another time, but of course they take the view that the risen Jesus actually visited the new world um, after his resurrection. It also grows ethnically though, so it's going to grow um, out of Jewishness into Gentileness, but it's going to have baby steps. So, let's see here, if I think I discard, discarded my pen... See if I can find it here. Um, all right, well, I guess we'll just skip that. Here it is. All right, so if you think of the book of Acts, and so here's Jews, right, and here's Gentiles, what you have is you have liminal groups who are kind of not fully one or the other. Clear example is Samaritans. So Samaritans of chapter 8 are brought in, and they are like half Jewish, right? You also, though, have uh, people like God-fearers and proselytes. So those would be. Gentiles, uh, proselyte is a complete convert to Judaism. So, like in the male case, be circumcised. A God-fearer is someone who's interested in Judaism, is abiding by a lot of the ethics, but isn't a full convert. It's often the, the stopping point for the males to be circumcision. And this may sound like a weird one, but the book of Acts stresses it, and that's the eunuch in chapter 8, because the eunuch in chapter 8, by Mosaic law, could not go to Temple Mount. He could not be um, in the holiest place of the Jewish religion. He's an outsider. But yet he's brought in um, into Christianity by the preaching of the gospel. So uh, you have liminal groups are already being brought in. So it's both growing um, ethnically as well as geographically, which brings us to the split with Judaism. One of the major things that happens in the book of Acts is that Christianity and Judaism begin to part their ways. So In historical scholarship, this is actually called The Parting of the Ways. What they would tend to stress in academics is it's probably not like one event. It's more of a trajectory. So here's Judaism and Christianity begins to kind of break off. And so in the first century, um, an outsider like a Roman politician would probably think of Christians as a subset of Jews. So you have Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Essenes, and Messianic Christians, like this, a subset of Jews. Throughout the first century. When you get to the second century, they oh, I think this is an entirely different religion. Like this isn't just Judaism, this is like different. At that point, even an outside politician would know these are different from each other. So, what are some major breakoff points inside of, of the book of Acts? So, one would be the Jerusalem Council. It's often called that. I personally don't prefer that language. This gets to your views of church government. But even Baptists often call it a Jerusalem council as if it's just the elders talking and making the decision. It clearly says in Acts 15, it seemed good to the apostles, the elders, and the entire congregation, it says, the entire assembly. So you could call it the Jerusalem assembly. And what's, what's on the docket for their um, business meeting? What do Gentiles have to do to be Christians? Yeah, so to be saved, do you have to be circumcised is like the key issue. So just to kind of make this, you know, really stick in your mind, can you imagine if you're on family vacation somewhere, and uh, let's go to church because we should go to church even on family vacation, and you're like, okay, so we visit this local church, so you know, uh, Green River Bible Church or something. And So you're there, and you go to the uh, assembly, and they say afterwards we're gonna have a church business meeting. You, you're welcome to stick around. You do so, and in the business meeting, the order of uh, conversation is, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? You'd be like, these are weird people. Like, let's get out of here, honey. Let's take the kids and go, right? Because it's a different period of time where they are. They're they're figuring out self-identity issues. So that's a major one. Another major one is um, the destruction of Jerusalem because the Christians don't defend Jerusalem. They flee. They run away. And the non-Messianic Jews are like, you cowards. You didn't defend the holiest places. We don't like you. So you know we are different. You are Christians. We are Jews. That was another key turning point. That was eighty seventy. To be fair to the Christians, though, why wouldn't they have the same um, perspective to defend Jerusalem as the non-Messianite Jews would have? What are some reasons? The temple. the temple, because it's nice. You can worship in it. They do actually. They worship at Solomon's Porch, but they don't need it because they don't do sacrifices, so you don't need the temple. Well, the Jews, they want to preserve, right? The temple is the holy place. Also, probably some of them thought uh, of Jesus' words, when you see these things happening and armies outside the gates, outside the walls, flee to the mountains. Even if you're pregnant, flee. Even if it's the Sabbath, flee. So they're going to run away. And so they probably think they're actually obeying Jesus at that point. Um, that's another kind of facet to all that. So that's another key turning point. Another one is AD 135, and what happens here is there's a guy named Bar Kokhba. He's a Jewish leader, and he's like, I'm the Messiah. Follow me. We're going to rise up again against the Roman Empire, Eighty-one thirty-five. If you're a Christian Jew, or a Christian in general for that matter, but especially a Christian Jew, And the Roman uh, leaders are like, hey, there's this Bar Kokhba guy. So his real name is Bar Kosaba, but Bar Kokhba means son of the star because he thinks he's the fulfillment of numbers, prophecy of the Messiah. And people start following him. And you you know the end of the story because the Roman Empire is a little bit stronger than the Jews, right? So you know how it's going to end. If you are a Messianic Jew, what would you probably let the Romans know? That's not my president, or you want to say it, right? It's like, he's not my guy. He's not my Messiah. Our Messiah came. Um, He didn't uh, come, at least, you know, the first time, to overtopple the kingdoms. So you can get into the future about all that happening, but he's not our guy. It's at that point that Romans probably recognize the difference between Christians and Jews. Like, oh, you are two different groups. Inside the book of Acts, though, uh, Christian is rarely used, as in chapter 11, and they're called Christians. There's only one other book in the New Testament that uses the word Christian. Anybody know what the name of it is? Only one other New Testament book uses the word Christian. It's 1 Peter, actually. Um, It's a pretty rare word, actually, in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, there are other words they use far more commonly than Christian. So what do they call Christians in Acts without saying they're Christians? Believers? Brethren? Brethren? disciples, um, followers of the way is actually a somewhat common one, actually like nine or a dozen times or so. Um, Nazarenes a few times. I'm missing one or two. But yeah, they're called lots of other stuff besides Christians. Interestingly enough, over time, Christian has become the dominant word by which these people are labeled. So that's a key difference in splitting with Judaism. And we'll do one last thing and then we'll break up in your prayer groups. The book of Acts is very selective in its history which, by the way, all history books are, by necessity. If you were to write a history book about the history of America and included everything that happened, it would include the fact that Paul Hartog, at 10.40 this morning after chapel, ate some really, really yummy breakfast pastries that Tim Little and his wife had brought to chapel. Because it happened. It's history. It really happened. It's historical but that's not going to meet the standard of, like, get it into your textbook, right? That's just crazy to put in there. Every textbook is selective, and therefore it tends to mirror the values of the editors. You can't really have a value-free history textbook because it's going to mirror what people want or don't want in it. The primary purpose, it seems to me, of the book of Acts is, first of all, we call it Acts the Apostles, but really it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles or even beyond that. If you read the first two verses, it's the Acts of Christ through his spirit in the apostles, actually, um, is to show how Jew- Jewish converts and Gentile converts are equal in the church before God. So to prove that, you stick with two apostles, Peter and Paul. Paul himself says Peter is the apostle to whom? The Jews, or the circumcised. Paul says, I am the apostle to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. And then you have very specific Examples that are true of both to say they're equally apostolic. So quickly, what are some things that happen to both Peter and Paul in the book of Acts? Or things they both do in the book of Acts? I'm sorry? Preach to Gentiles, Gentiles, actually, because Peter does that in Cornelius in Acts 10 that we read. Um, And Paul does that throughout the end of the book, chapter after chapter. What else do they do? They heal a lame man, so Peter raises a lame man in the temple. Paul uh, raises a lame man in Lystra. They raise someone from the dead, so Peter uh, raises Dorcas or Tabitha. If you're, like, old school, you can twitch your nose. Um, And Paul raises Eutychus, who's, like, the patron saint of sleepy church members. If you remember, he's the one who's in the window, and he falls out of the third floor and then dies. It seems like he dies. They pick him up as dead, and then Paul raises him. Uh, They both have visions, so Peter has the the pig-in-the-blanket vision where it's kind of like, eat the meat. I'm telling you, eat the meat. Like, no, it's unclean. No, eat the pork. And then uh, Paul has a vision of the Macedonian young man telling him to go to Macedonia. They're both imprisoned. They both appear before the Sanhedrin, Um, all kinds of things. So what's happening is that Paul is equally apostolic as Peter. Like, make your list of what it takes to be revered apostle and. Paul is just like that. Paul is as good as Peter. Therefore, the Gentile mission is just as divine as the Jewish mission. God is reaching out to Gentiles as well as Jews, which doesn't amaze us because in this room this evening, I doubt there's a single Jew ethnically in this room. Is anyone Jewish? Mark, you know percentage? I mean, there's a small chance because of my mom's Hispanic side with uh, conversos getting kicked out of Spain, coming to the New World, uh, that I have some Jewish blood. in I've never taken a DNA test, but... But most likely, we're all Gentiles. We, just, we can't imagine a scenario in the Greco-Roman context in which 10 to 15% of the population is Jewish and, like, 0.001% is Christian, right? That's what it's like early on, uh, but we simply can't imagine that. I am out of time. I could say more, but we'll pick up our story next time. What happened to uh, So, yeah, his, his um, armies were slaughtered, destroyed, and it wasn't even as big of a fight as the 70s revolt in Jerusalem. They had Mossad and all that in Jerusalem. It's pretty easy to wipe out in the case of uh, the 135 revolt. So, All right, um, let's break up in our groups for the 15 minutes of prayer here. Um, I don't know how it works. Sorry. Do you just like break up in your own groups? Okay, break up in your own groups. I'll come join a group, I think, and uh, have a word of prayer. If you have anything else you want to talk about in the next couple weeks, add it to our list, and I'll be happy to try to address it thanks for listening for more resources visit our website mbcgrimes.org may the word of Christ dwell in you richly and to God be the glory